Hi, this is Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 37, Making the Future. The future is an undiscovered country, and most attempts to imagine what it's like before we arrive are doomed to failure. Generally, no one gets it right, but sometimes one in a hundred predictors do get it right and are thereafter known as visionary, while the other 99 are quietly forgotten. So in that spirit, here's our one in a hundred prediction about Helium-3. Meh. Dear Cheap Astronomy, is Helium-3 the future power source of humanity? Helium-3 is a proposed second-generation fuel for hypothetical nuclear fusion reactors. However, the hypothetical nature of such reactors should not be understated since first-generation fusion reactors that will use deuterium and tritium are yet to be built. There are high hopes that such hot fusion power plants will become a reality in the not-too-distant future, but while they are theoretically possible, it remains a major engineering challenge to turn that theory into reality. Deuterium and tritium reactors will pump out high-energy neutrons. Those energetic neutrons can't be contained in any way, but you can surround the reactor with circulating water so that the neutrons heat the water, and the heated water then drives steam turbines. Second-generation fusion reactors, using helium-3, will pump out high-energy protons, which are charged particles, and hence are totally containable. If we can engineer a mechanism whereby magnets direct a stream of those high-energy protons then we should be able to generate a countercurrent stream of oppositely charged electrons. An energetic stream of electrons passing through a wire is what's commonly known as electricity. So, in a nutshell, assuming first-generation fusion reactors can be constructed, then second-generation fusion reactors offer an even more efficient method of energy production. But, even assuming we do sort out all the engineering required, helium-3 is a very scarce commodity, at least on Earth. Helium-3, with one proton and two neutrons, is an isotope of helium-4, which has two protons and two neutrons. Helium-4 is what we normally use to inflate upwardly mobile balloons and to make our voices go squeaky. Some helium-4 and 3 was trapped within the crust of the primordial Earth, although more helium-4 has come as a byproduct of the natural radioactive decay of uranium or thorium. Most helium-3 on Earth arises from cosmic ray interactions in the atmosphere, as well as from man-made sources, being nuclear bomb tests and nuclear fission reactors. Although helium-3 is being constantly pumped out from the sun, 
our magnetosphere works to protect us from the solar wind, and hence also prevents us from obtaining all that helium-3. However, since the Moon has neither a magnetic field or an atmosphere, solar wind particles come into direct contact with the lunar surface. And since helium is very inert, chemically speaking, any helium-3 captured in the lunar regolith will just sit there, potentially for billions of years. All that said, though, the slow and steady addition of helium-3 over the last 4 billion years has resulted in an average lunar regolith concentration of about 13 parts per billion, which is not a lot. So to mine one metric tonne of the Moon's helium-3 reserves, you would need to process over 150 million metric tonnes of regolith. One tonne of helium-3 could be compressed into the volume of a small car, and on return to Earth, could then fulfil all the USA's energy needs for about nine days. At least once we figured out how to build those second-generation fusion reactors. Extracting all the helium-3 that there is on the Moon's surface might power all the Earth's energy needs for more than 10,000 years. Although in well less than 10,000 years, we'll probably have Dyson-swarmed the Sun, and the Moon's surface will be more valuable as real estate than as an open mine. But well before all that happens, it's important to consider whether a small-scale operation will deliver economic returns. It's hard to argue for the value of going large-scale if small-scale doesn't pay off some dividends first. Getting that first tonne of helium-3 requires strip mining an area of about 170 square kilometres and then heating the collected 150 mils of surface regolith to about 600 degrees Celsius. While all that is technically feasible, there's some substantial infrastructure required, as well as a small expert workforce who will need somewhere to live. So while helium-3 might be a future power source for humanity, it probably won't be the only one. And if we do find a more efficient power source in the meantime, we might never even use helium-3. So for now, helium-3 fusion power looks like a future possibility rather than a future probability. And thanks me. Of course, if helium-3 does become the lifeblood of future lunar colonies, you've just lost five minutes, you'll never get back. But whatever happens on the moon, we are going to Mars. Absolutely. Sometime. Dear Cheap Astronomy, what do you think the first Mars mission will be like? Here at Cheap Astronomy, we think the first crewed Mars mission won't be rushed. NASA's current plan is to land humans on Mars in the 2030s, although it is just a plan that you wouldn't put money on, and nor has anyone. But in any case, whenever we do land, current thinking is that our Martian astronauts will be welcomed by robots. Given the massive investment of time and money required, it's unlikely the first Mars mission will be a brief and largely symbolic flag and footprints landing. 
there's an expectation that the first astronauts we send will have a long time on the surface to do some kick-ass science and some kick-ass media. And they'll just be the start of an intensive exploration program rather than a one-off history-making mission. So to make all that possible, current thinking is that we should first land robots who will have spent a year or more building habitats for the astronauts so the astronauts can just land, drop their gear and get straight to work. Those habitats might be constructed in excavated caves for radiation shielding, although building inside caves comes with its own problems and risks, so some of that is still on the drawing board. However, it must be said the whole robot advance party idea is also still pretty much on the drawing board. It's great that Robonaut 2 is aboard the ISS now, but it remains unclear when it will do any EVA time, in other words, to actually go outside the ISS. Robonaut 2 would require some major upgrades to operate in the vacuum of space. Of course, Mars's atmosphere is not a vacuum, but having only 1% of Earth's atmospheric density, it wouldn't be much use in heat transfer, and the dust in the atmosphere could quickly clog any filters. So, on Mars, you are probably better off having some robots that are built to work in vacuums. In any case, it's unclear why you would want all your Mars advanced robots to be humaniform the way Robonaut 2 is. For example, if you wanted to excavate caves or dig foundations for the habitats, you'd probably want some semi-autonomous front-end loaders that had been adapted to operate in the Martian environment. But there it's not clear if these ideas have even got onto the drawing board. So there are quite a few things that you couldn't exactly call on track for a 2030s landing. Of course, NASA could just do a footprints and flags mission without the advanced robots, but no one thinks the Orion capsule is big enough for a crew and all the equipment needed. NASA is now talking about building a spacecraft with proper living space, suitable for the two to three year journey to Mars and back. It will presumably be a non-aerodynamic craft that will be built or inflated in orbit and that will be big enough to swing quite a few cats. Orion will dock with it and become part of the whole spacecraft that flies to Mars. And once it's there, the astronauts will transfer to a Mars excursion vehicle that's either come along with the spacecraft or is already in orbit when the spacecraft arrives. The astronauts will land with it and then return on the ascent stage of that vehicle. Then the astronauts get back aboard the main spacecraft and fly back to Earth and finally land using Orion again. And of course, there's always SpaceX, who recently announced their interplanetary spaceship, the first of which might be called the Heart of Gold, although here at Cheap Astronomy, we're quite fond of its earlier working title, BFS, for Big Spaceship. The BFS is planned to be around 50 metres long and 15 metres in diameter and will be able to transport 450 metric tonnes of crew and cargo, 
if and when it's built. It's not yet clear how big the crew compartment might be, but it will presumably be big enough to also swing quite a few cats. A date has not been set for when the BFS is built, let alone launches atop a super heavy lift rocket, which is also known as the BFR. Elon Musk says SpaceX can do it all without NASA contracts, but it's hard to see them doing the whole mission off their own back, even with some crowdsource funding. At this point in history, it's hard to believe that a Mars mission can get off the ground without one or more governments backing. So, once again, here at Cheap Astronomy, while we do think the first crewed Mars mission will happen, we don't think it will be rushed. And we also think there'll be robots involved. And thanks me. And heck, as long as we're predicting future Mars missions, not only will there be robots involved, there'll also be rotation-generated artificial gravity involved. And since we're not even talking about building those kind of spacecraft, the first crewed mission to Mars could still be a while off yet. And that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to fly to Mars in a big spaceship, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll tell you how to in a Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.